Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Well, good morning. How we doing? It's great to be here. My name is Kevin, by the way. That last jam I had to say was just a, that was a Gen X jam right there. That was, that was, my, that was, that was where I was at right there. That was, that was it. So if any of y'all didn't know that song, Majesty, that was, that was awesome. Anyway, this morning, hey, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, continuing our whole thing, our whole series on Exodus. And so I'm super excited to be here. Um, if there's one thing that I have learned in my life, it's that a great what is only as powerful if we know the why. And if it, let me kind of ex- explain that, kind of flush that out for you if that, that's a little too ambiguous. If, if we don't know the backstory, then we don't know why something is. If you ever walk into a movie in the middle of a movie uh, and you don't know the plot, you haven't watched the whole thing, um, you usually don't pick up on the magnitude of exactly the whole sequence of the movie. And you don't know what is gonna happen. You don't know the characters. You don't know um, who's good and who's bad. And so this morning, when we look at the great what, we have to first know the why. Um, A couple weeks ago, I got to go to um, the Art Institute of Chicago with my family. We were there on vacation. And uh, if you know anything about, that is one of the most renowned uh, museums there are. And so um, I like football, I like sports, but I also like to go to museums. I know that's kind of weird, but when I was there, um, we got to see what I would consider to be some of the greatest pieces of art in the world. And so there was this one author that I really like, and that's Vincent Van Gogh. And so while I was there, um, this painting was here. And so when I look at this painting, for some of us that don't know, he did several self-portraits right? He did um, over 30 to be exact. And, and so what, one thing, that, this is later in his life, right? This is three years before his tragic death. And if you know anything about this, this painter, you can see that there is so much more going on below the surface, right? You can see that this picture really shows the, the turbulence, right? The inner turbulence going on in his own life as he was dealing with depression, mental illness, alcoholism. He couldn't really find his place in this world. He was trying to figure out what exactly he was on planet Earth for. He couldn't make a living as, a, as, a, as an artist. He didn't make any money. And, and I struggle to even know how that even is possible. You also see this, is that he couldn't make it as an art dealer. And as, and as a pastor as himself, and a teacher, he just didn't know how he fit. And I, I, I love this, this painting because you can see all of the, the, the heaviness that's going on in this painting. Because all of it is, it, 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 at a glance you would just say that is something that's very obvious. But if you look deeper, you can see that there's a whole lot going on. It's amazing to me that this guy right here. Consider one of the 10 best artists of all time. 
a similar painting sold for over $50 million, and his, his, his works, if you put them all together, are worth over a billion dollars. But yet, in his day and age, he could not, he couldn't make it. If you just glance at this, you would miss all of that. Why? Because we don't know the why. We don't know the reason behind it. And in a week from today, we're going to take over 50 teenagers for camp. And if you don't know the why, the reason behind why we go to camp, we know that when we get away from the normal and we intentionally go and seek after who God is and see him revealed to us, he does great things. So it's not just a trip to the beach. It's a meeting where we get to see God in a different light. We get to see the backstory. Many years ago, I went on a mission trip to Mexico, and I was there, and I never will forget this because I was sitting out front of our hotel way south of the border, 18 hours south, and I was four, we were four hours from the other coast. We were way down there. And we were there, and I did not understand what was going on but you kind of put yourself into perspective because this is what happened to me. I'm sitting on the front porch of this hotel and I kid you not, this is what happened. This little kid rolled by in a little bicycle and just threw a water balloon at me and I had a Bible in my hand. I was just like, what? And, and then this older man walks by me, okay? And he tries to pour water on me. And I was totally confused, okay? Well, I didn't think anything about it. We sent our teams out that, that morning to go and, and to sign up. What we did was we showed um, the Jesus video in, in their language. And so we, went, we sent teenagers out and they, they had like several different units that went. And when we did that, we saw one thing. All of a sudden, all of our teams were being attacked by water. We had no idea that in Mexico, there's a thing called um, John the Baptist Day, and this was a, a deeply rooted thing in that culture where you went and you poured water on people on that day. Okay, it's really super important to know the backstory. So when we talk about the 10 plagues, let's just be honest. Lifeway, is not, Lifeway hasn't done the plagues yet for VBS. This is not something that we normally talk about because it's very difficult to even look at this sometimes because there's a lot of... Things you're just like, I don't know what's going on there. This is, this is um, why did he do that, right? You, ha- you saw wave after wave of judgment, right? And over 400 years that they were in bondage, but yet we just have a hard time identifying this story today and what it means today. If we could, we could see why God did this, though, we would see that the theme and the story of who God is would become more prevalent in our own lives. We would get to see that the character, the backstory, is the thing that matters. The way that he dealt with the people and his constant pursuit after people is so important. He kind of, if you were to ask, why did he bring the plagues? Your, your, your answer might be something simply like this. He did it to set his people free which is totally true. Or you might say something like this. He did it because the Egyptians had enslaved them, and he was reversing that. Totally true. But I think that there is so much more going on in this story because there is, there is there's a symbolism. There is not even that. You can see the heartbeat of God and how he is ever expanding and working through his people. In this instance, his chosen people. So I think 
Moses is going to help us out. So, and, and, and this is going to give us a little insight of why exactly, um, what is the point of all this, right? In, in Exodus 8, 10, it says this. It says, it will be as you say that you will know, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. In other words, I'm going to bring about these plagues and you're going to see the whole point of this whole thing is that we see that there is no one as great as our God, this one true living God. And then in, in chapter 9, one plague later, right, he goes, he goes in verse 15, it says this, it says, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and my name and that you will be proclaimed in the earth. You know, it's interesting that you see that because there's this whole backstory, right, where, where God goes and he, and, he, and he gives Moses this pep talk, like you're going to go and you're going to say these things. But then you also find out that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So, so there's this whole weird thing where you're going to go in, it's going to be great, you're going to do it, but I'm going to work against you. It almost seems self-defeating. It almost seems like, why, what is going on here? And I want to just put this in front of you this morning that the reason for the 10 plagues is, is simple. It's because God is the God of everyone. It's very simple. We saw over 130 gods that were worshipped, right, of, of the Egyptians. But you start to see this one idea that their God, Yahweh, was greater and he was bigger and he was better. And he was, no one, he was not like any of the deities that were worshipped in that day. And so if you take Christianity, sometimes it gets a bad rap in this regard, um, that it's, it's somehow um, based on geography, right? And how it started not only in the Middle East and then spread to Europe and then, then to America, and now it's not as much of America, right? But you start to see that, you know, 97% of Hindus live in India. It's very, it's very isolated, but you see now that there's over 2.3 billion Christians in the world and 60% of those live below the equator. And there's twice as many Americans in South America than there are in North America. So you can see that this God is the God for everyone. He is not just an idea for America or the West. He's the God of all. And he's for everyone. And his name is being made known so that everybody may know who he is. He was the God for the Egyptians here. He was giving the Egyptians an opportunity to know of his great name so that they could surrender, so that they could follow this God, this Yahweh. It was for the prostitute just a few chapters later so that she would have seen and said, I know what happened and I saw it. I heard about it and I believe it. The power was displayed simply so that we could see who God was. And that we could identify that it was different than anything else. Now, if you look at the cycle of these plagues, right? If you look at the way that this worked, the same thing happened through the whole 10. The first thing that happened is that Moses and Aaron would meet, or sometimes it was just Moses, um, would meet with God. And then there would be a confrontation. And it didn't go so well. The rejection from Pharaoh. Um, and then the plague would be executed. And so this whole vicious cycle would be happening over and over and over again. Now we got a lot of questions in this. 
If we just want to be really honest, we've got to be able to say, how is this like the character and nature of who God is? This morning, I want to talk about that. Because they were increasing in severity. And the whole purpose of this that we're going to get to in just a second is looking at the fact that everything was taken apart. Everything that had been put together, all creation that had been assimilated had literally been deconstructed. But it comes to the the culmination in the last plague, the, the plague of the firstborn, the most painful one, the one that is so difficult to even talk about. Because when you, when you see this, you're going to see that God is 100% just, but yet he is 100% full of grace. And us trying to make sense of that is where our humanity is and where we have to sit here and we have to struggle through these things. My prayer this morning is that we would see that the character and nature of God is for us and he's with us and he has a plan for his people. So let's read that last plate. It says this in verse four, it says, so Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn child, son of in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at the, at the hand mill and all the, of the firstborn at the cattle as well. And there will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than ever had been there again. It will never be again. So you see this whole dialogue that not only is God gonna show up, but it's going to be something that's never been done before. It's gonna be done in a way that emulated what Pharaoh had just done, right? So Pharaoh had just ordered all of this years before, right? Of all the Israelite people. But this one was going to be different. Verse 7. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Well, then you will know that the Lord has made a distinction between Israel and and Egypt. And all the officials of yours will come to, to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you, to all the people who have followed you. And after that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Now, I ask you, why was, was he upset? And I, I think you start to see this thing unraveling because what you start to see is, is that Moses had seen 10 times now through all of these plagues, patience. The one attribute that you would never think to see in the middle of plagues. Grace was being shown in a, in a really tangible way. And that God was giving every opportunity to his people. Not only to his people, when I say that, I mean that commonly to everyone, to the the Egyptian. God was giving grace so that people could see the central theme of who God is. So it wasn't as if God was just out to kill for he showed grace after grace after grace. He gave a prolonged and in my opinion, unnecessary amount of time to allow people to respond. So, you start to ask the question, and Dan started on it last week, about 
You know, when we're looking at the scripture, who exactly is to blame for all of this? And who did the hardening of the hearts? Was it God or was it Pharaoh? Was it free will? Was it preordained? Well, I think these, these verses here in these 10 plagues gives us a little more insight of what's going on. In 713, well, really for the first five plagues, it's exactly the same thing. The phrase, his heart was hardened. Pharaoh's heart, on his own free will, was hardened. God was not involved in that directly, right? So what it says in verse 13, yes, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard because he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. But then there's something that occurs, right? The last five, it shifts. And this is where this weird dichotomy for us trying to understand exactly the way God works and us trying to be able to reason through this. Because at that point, God is part of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Verse 9, verse 12, or chapter 9, verse 12, it says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart because he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had told Moses. So what you see here is, is that there was a shift. And I, am, I have I've read many, many people trying to make sense of this. But the one thing that we do know is that it's almost as this, even though God knew that Pharaoh would re- resist his, his, his call to repentance, to change and to let God's people go, he still offered him a chance to do the right thing. And then eventually, Pharaoh's heart reached a level, an evil level that was almost like a point of no return. And then God takes over and bends Pharaoh's heart towards evil to create a situation where God himself could work out his own redemptive purposes, a.k.a. let his people go. See, his people, through the Abrahamic covenant, that were supposed to be able to go to the ends of the earth and share of God's great name and to be ambassadors for who God is, all of those things happened. There's grace. It's almost as if God knew that this was going to happen, but yet he still gave in the situation what is perceived to be free will and an opportunity to respond. Yet God turned it back to, for his own purposes to let his people free, be free. Grace is seen. The plague of the firstborn was an echo of Pharaoh's decision. What you see is, is that over and over again, if we, if we wanted to be really honest, if God wanted to do judgment on his people, what would he do? He could do a whole lot better job. He's not doing a real good job, right? He's constantly stopping. He's giving this whole cycle of, of like, I'm going to you. I'm giving you another chance. I'm showing and displaying my power. As you know, when the, when the, when the staff was turned to the snake, all of these things were shown to show the, the power of God, but yet all of them were rejected. You see that there is power that is is shown. There is power that's put on display. And it is to show exactly that this God is different from any other God. Now, if you just look at the text, and I'm not a Hebrew theologian by any means, but when you look at the way and the repetition of the way that things are structured, 
in the Hebrew, you're going to see that there is a lot of similarities to the Genesis 1 creation story. But it's all happening in reverse. So the idea to, um, that God created all and that he brought order to the world and the fact that he brought, he brought his people and that he brought light, all of those things are stripped away. For you see that things are un- uncreated and disorganized. There's chaos. There's darkness. Everything happens backwards. And it, to the Hebrew, when they read this, they wouldn't have been able to identify the similarities between the creation story. And they would have been able to see the play on words here that just as the true God brought everything into motion, this guy, Pharaoh, and because of these plagues, everything was taken away. For even to the point where the magicians, right, they, they, saw, they saw and recognized his power. It says this in verse 10. It says, Pharaoh's official said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Did you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? So even they, halfway through, identified that, hey, we can't recreate this stuff. We don't know what's going on. This is the one true living God. God showed his power. He displayed that, and yet there still was a hardening of heart. First through Pharaoh, and then God reinforced that. You see, their lives through these 10 plagues were ruined economically, emotionally, physically, it was all, all the things that they held dear were, came apart. And all the things that mattered to them in their society, they were the greatest nation of this time. And all those things came apart in these 10 plagues. Yes, did they recover? Yeah, they did. But that was not the point of any of this. It was not to bring, to, to bring complete judgment on them. The point of this whole thing, this whole little sequence of events was to show of God's great name that he's for his people, and for all people. There's something else going on here. When you look at the 10 plagues, you can see that there are, um, just through all the different ones, that they represent something. I think we've got that. So you've got the blood plague, right? And then, you know, that was Apis, um, the goddess of the Nile. And you can go down and see how they worshiped these gods that represented their land, their economy. Right? And so you go through the whole sequence of events, you know, like you've got um, Hequet, which was, she was like a, a goddess of birth. Um, and you go through all of these ones. I think we've got even the one, I'm going to go to the last one on the second page there. And you can see the, the, the idea of the, of the firstborn plague. It represented who? Pharaoh. Why? Because Pharaoh saw himself as a god. So when there was darkness, and then when there was death, all of these things came about just to show exactly who had the power at the end of the day, who was in charge, and the things that really matter in this world. See, there is this promise through all of this. In, 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 in chapter 12, when we look at exactly what is the Passover, right? There, that, this is something we've asked, you know, like it becomes a staple part of the Hebrew faith the Jewish faith, and it's still done today, you're going to see that there is a specific order 
to what God wants to do here, to remember that this is a big deal, that they're about to exit, they're about to leave, they're about to be set free. So of course, this is, this is given the exact order and detail that you would expect. Let's, let's pick up in verse 21, it says this, it says, then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals of your families and, and slaughter the Passover lamb. And they took a bunch of hyssop and dipped it into the blood, into the basin and put some blood on top and on both sides and on the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, they will see the blood on top of the doorframe and it will pass over that doorway and they will, not be, they will not permit the destroyer to enter into your houses and strike you down. This is one of the key foundational ceremonies that you see Jewish people go through. Why? Because it represents what? The promise of God. The fact that there is redemption, there is grace apart from his power. His promise is seen in the Passover, the ceremony of the Passover. And we're going to see how that translates just a little bit into the New Testament. Now, I really like music. If you know, if, if any people that really know me dear, I really like music. And I, if there's anything I, I like even beyond that, it's watching the backstory of, of musicians and how the bands came to be. So I like a good documentary, okay? I might be kind of a nerd in that regard. But I like to see the way that it happens. And there's always the same sequence of events that happens, right? There's this growth to try to see the, 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 the band or the artist make it. And then once they achieve that, there's always this hard kind of tension period where, where as, as what they thought success was going to be, it really wasn't. And then usually there's some sort of decline or, or maybe there's some kind of trial that happens and then there's usually a resolution to where they're still working these things out, happen time and time again. I'm watching, um, don't judge me, but I'm watching a, a documentary on Jay-Z, right, the other day. And Jay-Z, um, one of the, the interesting things that, that I just, I didn't know a whole lot about, but this cat, um, if, if you know that about how he came about his music, I thought it was just really interesting because you see Jay-Z all, you know, like, like he usually looks. I think we got a photo of that, maybe. Right? So he looks like Jay-Z does. And then on top of that, you see his producers, right? So the people that are there in the, in the studio with him, right? You've got Pharrell, you got Timberland. So these are really important people. And then the story shifts and becomes fixated on this one figure, and I did not understand this to save my life. There's some guy on the couch that doesn't have shoes. It's just chilling, right? There he is. And I was really confused at first, and I did not know what was the point of all this. If anybody knows, that's Rick Rubin. And if you want to make your band successful today, right, you go to this guy. If, you, if you're good enough for him to take your call so he's worked with everybody from Run DMC to BC Boys to Adele, Johnny Cash, Dixie Chicks, Avet Brothers, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nickelback. No, not Nickelback. So what you see is you can see that this guy that looks like he just rolled out of bed, doesn't have shoes on shorts. I, I love the fact that when you see the picture of all of them together, what is he rocking? He's rocking some Crocs. He's got Crocs on and he's there just being himself. What you see is this, God 
always has the same story among his people. Pharrell, all of these people could not take this artist to the next level. But this one guy, for some reason, has this secret recipe. And what is his recipe? It's simply this, is that he cuts through everything. He's figured out a way to make the artist find out exactly what is going on in the heart, what he's trying to portray, and because of that, he can communicate to them like no other. Now, there was this little, little transaction between him and Jay-Z, and one of the interesting things he said was, what are you trying to say? Like, what, where, where are you trying to head as an artist? And he says this, he goes, man, um, I've had a child, and all of the things that I thought were important, I realize I'm, Ill, I'm ill-equipped. I don't have anything for, for, for this child. I don't know how to act as a dad. I've chased success my whole life. And then he stops him. Rick Rubin stops him. And guess what he says? He says, but I guess you got some of that, but you realize that that really didn't matter in the end. And it's not as you thought. And he goes, yes. See, I think that there's this tension that goes on in our own lives because Personally, when we start to translate this to the New Testament, guess what? There is this tension between we 100% identify with this story because we see God's work and justice, right? Slavery is bad. Oppression of people is bad. But I think there's another side of us that's also kind of repulsed by the whole thing. And especially in the culture we live today because no one really tells me anything. I'm going to be me. You don't, you don't get in my lane. And I think that there, if we'd be really honest, we would say that we all agree that God is good, but we have a hard time sometimes with his justice. We have a hard time recognizing exactly what he did and that he is always right. The person that created and gave us creation is also the person that set forth all, all power and all authority. And sometimes as humans, that is hard for us. We can see how this long story of Exodus is really just a picture of our own lives and how each one of us are in bondage because of sin. And we're all in this long redemptive path and there had to be a way that God would be able to communicate with us. And then... Because of the Passover, all things are brought new. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, I love this. We can see how all this translates to Christ. It says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. I think that there is satisfaction and there, this is a good place to come to where we can say, I am 100% so thankful for this story. But on the other hand, we're sitting here saying, God, I am struggling with my own thing in my own heart, the way that I surrender all things to God. I think that's honest. I think that there is a longing for God that sometimes we forget. The fact that we live in a world we don't realize exactly how much we need God. I believe that there is a God-shaped vacuum in each one of our lives that only God can fill. And we will find that we fill everything with that, our own gods. We don't worship the sun god, or most of us don't. Or, you know, like, we don't have that. That is not the problem we have. 
but it's always the, the God that revolves around self and the things that we want. This morning, as we look, I want to do, I want, I want, I want justice and I want grace. We need them both. We need a God that somehow wrapped both of them and, and figured out a way that he still was not the person who had every person working their way to God. No, he, God came to us once and for all. So there's no greater picture than the Passover to a Christian when we connect all the dots. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, right, he came and walked on this earth and there's so many people that don't believe anything that this guy says. He starts doing miracles, not to uncreate, but to show that he had power over the creation. He didn't show disintegration apart from God, for he has the power of God in him. And he moves towards the sick and the lame, and he takes away the sickness. He, go, he comes to the blind, and he takes the blindness away. He moves to the dead, and he literally says, dead, don't be dead anymore. This is the guy who was God. And just, and just as we would like to be able to say, I don't know about who God is, we all have to come to, to the whole, our own idea in some way, if we know it or not, that we have to deal with the person of Jesus and who is Jesus to you. Hopefully today the Passover has been a picture of a God and the character of God that he is full of power, he is full of patience and he's also a God full of promise. All of those attributes are found in God. So on the night that, that Jesus celebrated and, and, and God's people then celebrated the Passover, the last week of Jesus' life, you see, the day that God sent judgment, they were supposed to, to, to recognize the day, that, the day that God sent justice. We call it Passover. Jesus stood up at that meal. And as they drank the glass of, of wine, he literally said it no longer is just about what happened in the Passover. It's my blood and it was shed for you. And then he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this isn't a symbol of the oppression of Egypt anymore. It's, it's more than that. It's my body that's going to be broken and it's going to break for you. You see, and as Jesus was on the cross, and this is like the one thing that I live my life around. As Jesus was on the cross, after wave and wave of judgment, just as we saw wave and wave of judgment on the plagues, you see how all these things parallel the fact that there was a person that took on this wrath on our behalf, and his name was Jesus. God is just, and he has, he has had something that needed to take away that sin. And God will bring judgment because he's a holy and just God. There's many times that people ask me that question, why is God like that? Why is because he is not a part of us? for he's perfect. And there had to be a person to get to God. And that person is a better Moses. His name is Jesus. Let's pray.
God, I pray that at this time, Lord, as we prepare our hearts and our minds for communion, God, I pray that our lives God, would be transparent and that we could be introspective. God, I pray that we would be able to see and prepare the fact that you were a better Moses for you were the sacrifice, a way that we could get to God. And just as this Passover was something that was symbolic of the releasing of God's people. Today, I pray that we would see God, just as, as, as Jay-Z asked the, all the right questions, but he didn't have any of the right answers, today we would see God, that you are the answer. God, I pray as we examine our own lives, what do we do with the person of Jesus? Do we accept? Do we struggle? I pray that we would look at our own salvation and our own place with God. God, I thank you for a day like today, July 4th, that we can be honest with ourselves and who you are. God, I pray that there would be some examination. God, you loved us enough to come to us. God, you loved us enough God, for you literally being the Passover. God, I pray that that would resonate in our own lives. God, that we can know you, that we can celebrate you. And just as one collective body of Christ here would be able to take this, we would have commonality in the cross. We have one thing to share, and that is We have grace found at the cross of Jesus. So God, prepare our hearts now. God, as we sing, as we meditate, I pray it be for you and for you alone. In your name I pray, amen.